Open your Bibles with me, please, to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul describes his conduct in serving the Lord Jesus Christ. We have heard already this morning, a couple of hours ago, several hours ago, about the Apostle comparing his life, his lifestyle, to a world-class athlete and recognizing the fact that all run in a race, but only one wins the prize. And he wrote to us and said, So run that ye may obtain first place. Obtain first place. And I want to uh, encourage you in a few minutes in this second assembly that we would end our lives well. And that we would use today as a turning point, use today as a fulcrum point to commit ourselves in an even more consecrated way to serving the Lord Jesus Christ. For the apostle said that they all run, whether it's eight finalists in a hundred meters for the world's fastest man title in an Olympic final, or whether it's 10,000 or 50,000 in some large marathon, only one wins the prize. And the apostle told us that we ought to so run our race to win that prize. In Philippians chapter 3, He has pointed out in verses 8 through 11 that all of his past accomplishments in the Jews' religion meant nothing to him. He counted them as dung. They were all lost to him for him to win Christ. But in verses 12 through 14, he makes a different comparison, and the comparison is against his accomplishments thus far as a Christian. And it's very important if you want to understand God's Word that you make this distinction. When the Apostle, and I haven't read it yet, I'm about to read it to you, when he says, forgetting those things which are behind, he is not referring to his sins of the past, and he's not referring to his Jewish pedigree, which was great, as he, and he lists it in uh, verses 3 through 7. He is referring to his accomplishments as a servant of Jesus Christ, and those accomplishments were great, and they were many. I read to you Philippians 3, 12 through 14. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended, of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Amen and amen. This is Paul saying the same thing as 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27 taught us, but in different words. He had been apprehended. That means to grab and stop something in its progress. That means to arrest a person. He had been arrested on the road to Damascus and his life was dramatically changed. And he humbled himself before the Lord that appeared to him on that road. He had been apprehended. I have appeared unto thee to make thee a minister. The Lord Jesus Christ of glory said to Saul of Tarsus, 
he had been apprehended. In that 12th verse, he is saying, I was apprehended to be the apostle to the Gentiles. I was apprehended to be a Christian of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I have not yet apprehended that for which I was apprehended. We would look at Paul's life and say, and for your information, Philippians is written from prison in Rome. The end of his life. We would say that the Apostle Paul had certainly apprehended that for which he had been apprehended. But Paul didn't look at it that way. And if Paul didn't look at his life that way, we shouldn't be looking at our lives that way. We should be looking at what did God apprehend me for? What has He saved me for? What are the roles that I have, whether they be a pastor for me, a father for some of you, a mother for some of you, and the other roles that we have, are you fulfilling them with the zeal and energy of wanting and accepting only first place? This one thing I do. What's His one thing that He does? I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Verse 14. I press. And you know, you can visualize in your mind the apostle describing a straining runner. He is leaning forward. He has got his neck outstretched, his chest outstretched. He's driving with all of his might for the finish line. Though Paul was in prison in Rome at the end of his life, he was still putting forth max effort to apprehend that for which he had been apprehended. The Saul of Tarsus had a set of gifts. Saul of Tarsus was given a series of open doors in his life, and he wanted to be the best that ever put on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not for his praise at all. For the glory of God for saving him. And so these are three important verses for us, and it's important for us to understand And I repeat myself that when he says forgetting those things which are behind, they are not his sins that he's forgetting that would demoralize him because he had some foolish, melancholy view of them. They are not his Jewish pedigree because he has already spent the ten verses necessary to get rid of them. It is his past accomplishments as an apostle. Forgetting those things which are behind. When you are running a mile race and you enter the home stretch, meaning you have 100 meters to the finish line, it does not matter how you ran the second lap. All that matters is how you run the next 100 meters. You say, well, I didn't run the second lap very well. It's under the blood of Christ. It's the next 100 meters. My father's the oldest man in this assembly. And all of you tail down from Him, trail down from Him. We want to end our lives well. If that is 10 years left, 20 years left, 40 years left, whatever it may be, let's use today and this expression right here by the Apostle Paul to leverage ourselves and to make a choice to consecrate our lives to greater effort to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. If the greatest Apostle who said he labored more abundantly than they all, would say that he forgets all those labors because he wants to finish well, we should say that. We have more reason to say it. Let's finish well. Let's end our lives well. 
The closer you are to death, that is the older you are, the more you should follow Paul's rule, forgetting everything you've done before. From this point on, it doesn't matter. It's like a race. I can't say it any plainer than that your second lap does not matter when you're at the top of the home stretch and you're 100 meters from the finish line. Let's give him that 100 meters all out. I wish I was 17, but I'm not. I wish I was 27, but I'm not. 37, 47, but I'm not. I'm 57. Flush it. Forget the past. Flush the past. Embrace the future. Grab the future and consecrate yourself to it. And let's run a race like all athletes run their races. They do not care about the second lap when they're at the top of the home stretch. And neither did Paul. And let's be like Paul. No matter how young you might be, this is for you as well. Paul's rule still applies even if you're young and your life has been relatively free from loss and quite exemplary. By God's grace, I'm not going to cloud this lesson. I'm not going to be very long and I'm not going to say very many things to you or turn you to very many places. Today, today is the last day of your life so far. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. Flush the past and let's grab the future. And let's run it like this man. I press toward the prize, toward the mark, the mark of the finish line, for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. His was a very high calling. All of us have a high calling. It's the calling wherewith we've been called in Ephesians chapter 4. We're the sons of God. And we should be living like the sons of God with all our might to please and glorify our Father in heaven and to show His religion to the world. My job, my life's work, this sermon is to press you to prepare to meet the God of all flesh. Let's run that home stretch with all our might. Paul was not content or slothful in spite of his great labors. He was not content. In a sermon I preached to you many years ago, where I dealt with this text at length, the point was entitled, Paul's Frustration. Because Paul was frustrated. He wasn't content at all. I have not yet apprehended that for which I was apprehended. We, we do not want to be ordinary Sunday to Sunday Christians that come in here and say to ourselves, I'm doing a pretty good job. Athletes don't say I'm doing a pretty good job. Doing a pretty good job doesn't get you to the finish line in front of anyone except abject losers. We want to come in here and stir each other up to be the very best wives if we're a wife to be the very best husbands, if we're a husband, to be the very best Christians that we can possibly be in every part of our lives. Paul continued to be a driven man. How driven are you to serve the Lord? And it was out of his love for Christ and his desire for Jesus Christ's glory. 
Paul had a 180 degree turn in his life. And no restraint of effort until the day of his death. We read of no retirement for the Apostle Paul. He was retired on the job by Nero. And his retirement was having his head cut off from what church history tells us. He was highly motivated by the years he had wasted persecuting Christ. And so his great efforts and achievements in the gospel did not calm his zeal for the Lord. He put forth max effort. And I want to stir you up to put forth max effort for the Lord of Jesus Christ. When we stand before Him, our talents, how we, and for talents in the Bible was a measure of money. It was a piece of money. You know, every time talents are, are taught, somebody will come up and say, you know, I'm a sculptor. The, the talent God gave me was to be a sculptor. How can I sculpt for Jesus? You can't sculpt for Jesus. Just forget your insanity and recognize that talent is a unit of money. And if you would go to Luke, you would find out that there it was pounds. And if you know anything about Great Britain or England, you would know what a pound is. It's a pound sterling. It's money. Instead of getting distracted about your talents, it's the roles God's given you. Whether you're talented or not in those roles, it's the assignments God's given you. It's the duties God's given you. Apply yourself in that money so that the Lord gets a return. Paul was a, a man that gave his best. And he was never content. He wanted to give more. He was content with what the Lord gave him in the way of food or clothing or, or those things, but he was not content in his performance. He wanted to lift up the pace and press even harder toward the finish line. No matter what we or anyone else thinks of our lives, let's do more. Let's press ahead. Have a holier outlook on life. Cleanse our heart from all foolish, negative, bitter, critical, unforgiving thoughts than we ever have before. Guard and monitor and hate our televisions more than we ever have before. Hate the wickedness of this world more than we have before. Love the brethren and serve them and delight in them and lift them up and be intimate and personal with them more than we ever have before. Let's take those things that God has charged us to do and do them better than we ever have before. This desire to do more should be your internal purity and your external service to God. We want to hate complacency. We want to hate compromise. We want less sin and more holiness, just like we sang, than ever in our thoughts, our words, and our actions. This is what Paul did. This is how Paul lived his life. When you look at Paul and say, how could he do the things that he did? This is how he did them. And each day when he got up, he did not think, I'm a pretty good Christian. He flushed it, hit the silver lever. I am going to run this home stretch. I have today. He and James and Jesus taught us not to worry about tomorrow. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. We're going to have a big enough job just to get ourselves through today, but let's do today better than we've ever done any day before in our lives. And a string of those put together is ending our lives well. And it's, there's, once we get to the end of our lives, we can't go back and retrace these steps. So God has convicted me for you and for me today to think about today is going to be the best I've ever lived for the Lord. I am going to be the purest in motive. I am going to guard my thoughts carefully. The words that come out of my mouth are going to be carefully chosen. I am going to serve the Lord better today than I ever have before. 
And that, strung with another one of those tomorrow, when we wake up and we say, Sunday doesn't count. Now it's Monday. And I'm going to live this, the greatest Monday of my life. Then we're like the Apostle Paul. That is what he is teaching us in Philippians 3, 12 through 14. Because he goes on to say, Let us therefore as many as be perfect be thus minded. Do you know what? A perfect Christian man thinks the same way Paul does. And so we've got today, and if the Lord's merciful, merciful, we'll get tomorrow, but tomorrow we flush today in order for Monday to be the greatest Monday we've ever had. And a week from then, if God allows us a week from Monday, then that Monday will be better than tomorrow. Then we're like Paul. This is what Paul told us. Oh yes. I usually hate carnal illustrations. I I read some little snippet in the last 48 hours. But the New England, the New England Patriots got a backup for Tom Brady. And so this guy, you know, that's used to playing football, is not going to touch a football for several years. He's going to have to sit and learn. But he was looking forward to that opportunity. He said, it doesn't matter if I went to a team that didn't have a quarterback or whether I go to a team that may have the best quarterback in the NFL. I'm going to apply myself and practice the same way, no matter which. I will go to practice every single day to see if I can be a little bit better every single day. Right. Now that I read in the last 48 hours. Is it okay if I use an illustration like that since the Apostle Paul used runners and boxers? Right. Practice should be getting a little bit better every single day. And I read that and I'm you know, the Lord had already convicted me about today. And I'm thinking, mm, that is exactly what we're talking about. How can they get motivated to do that? To play in the NFL. We're playing for the Lord of glory. We're commandos for Christ. We're the special operations forces of the kingdom of heaven. We should look at it whatever way you want so that you want to be the very best. The very best in controlling your thoughts, sins of the hearts. The very best in controlling your speech. A ten, a 10% of the Proverbs controlling our mouths. Controlling our feet, what we watch, what we read, how we relate to everyone around us, how easily and fully we forgive, all the things that we've been taught. Can we, today, by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, say, today will be the best day of my life and tomorrow will be better? The world says it. We can do it. Lord, help us to do it. We want to be like Paul and not like the following examples of backsliding that I'm about to give you. Paul pressed. Paul was like a runner. He was straining to finish because first place was the only place that counted for him. You know, if you've ever heard someone say strongly that, you know, second place is losing, I like him. You know, there was once a coach for the Green Bay Packers that you may have heard the expression that he said, they give him the quotation, Winning isn't everything. It's the only thing. Vince Lombardi. He was a pagan Catholic. He was talking about football. Paul was the apostle to you and me. The apostle of the Gentiles. But he spoke the same language for an incorruptible crown. Can we, before this sun sets, Make today 
The greatest day in ruling our speech, ruling our thoughts, ruling our actions, taking our hands, guarding our inputs, and making sure we give glory to the Lord Jesus Christ, our mouths full of thanksgiving and praise to Him. Can we do that? And can we make tomorrow better? This is what, this is my lesson. I want to make it as simple as I can for you. The kingdom of heaven takes violent pressing into it. The violent press into it by force. The Bible says about them in Luke chapter 16 and Matthew's account of the same. The apostle Paul was a man like that and he explained it to us in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. What? Know ye not that they which run in a race run all? But one wins the prize. So run that ye may obtain first place. The best. The shock troops. The storm troops. The special forces. The seals. Whatever you need. An NFL quarterback. Whatever you, whatever little illustration or whatever little metaphor helps you. Think about it the way Paul did. I press. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And what I did yesterday and what I've done the last year and what I've done the last 30 years since I was ordained, flush it all. Give me today, Lord, and I will show you today that I love you more than I've ever loved you before. And if you'll give me tomorrow, I will love you and serve you more tomorrow than I did today. God help us. That's all, that's all I have to tell you except to illustrate it a few more times. David was like Paul. David was a man after God's own heart. He spent the rest of his life in great diligence to God. He loved the Lord when he was young. He loved the Lord when he was old. He got into some sins when he was in the middle of his life. But boy, he sure did apply himself diligently toward the end of his life when he told that nation, I have gathered with all my might for the building of this temple. And it told the amount of gold. It told the amount of silver. It told the amount of brass. It told the amount. No, it did not tell the amount of iron, did it? What did it say? It had no number. It couldn't be measured. The truck scales would wear out before they could finish the amount of iron that David had gathered for the building of the temple. This house, this palace is not for man, it's for God. It has to be the best. It has to be exceeding magnificent. David burned himself out for the Lord at the end of his life. When he was in bed and couldn't even keep himself warm, he was warm. He was still giving instructions for the building of the most magnificent temple to the glory of God that could be made. And he charged Solomon, his son, to build it. He charged the princes of Israel to help his son because his son was young. David burned himself out for the Lord. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in a good way. I mean putting forth maximum effort, throwing that accelerator and throttle to its highest position so that you are pressing forward in every part of your life I am going to keep my life and be the greatest Christian I can be for the Lord's sake. Sins in the middle of your life need not wreck your life as David shows us. Don't you give me any excuses like that. And it doesn't matter whether you give them to me or not. Don't give them to the Lord. Confession, even if consequences remain in our lives for our foolishness, still allows any man to start over right now. David, even in repentance, was looking to greater usefulness. Look at Psalm 51. Remember this about David. Psalm 51. Even in the middle of his repentance for terrible sins, terrible, presumptuous, wicked sins, he was still God's man. Psalm 51 and verse 13, Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. 
Even in the middle of his repentance, he was still thinking about, I want to finish my race. Lord, give me your spirit back. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Verse 12. Uphold me with thy free spirit. Verse 11. Cast me not away. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Verse 10. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Verse 9. Hide thy face. Forget all my sins. Make me to hear joy and gladness as you back up through that chapter. But verse 13 is, he's thinking about, I've got a hundred meters left. I messed up. I sinned but I've got a hundred meters left. Lord, if you'll restore me, I will do everything that I possibly can for your kingdom. I will teach transgressors thy ways. I will not let my past guilt for my sins destroy me and take me down. And sinners shall be converted unto thee. My, my ministry will be fruitful because you're going to be with me. That is the attitude that we should have. Lord, help us to have it. Amen. I tell you about Gideon. Gideon has two names in the Bible, at least. Gideon and Jeroboam. Remember why he had the name Jeroboam? Because he got up one night and tore down Baal's altar and tore down the worship center for Baal right in his community. And in the morning, the Baal worshipers came to his father's house and said, we want Gideon. He tore down the idol of Baal that we worship. And his dad said, are you kidding me? Let Baal plead for himself. If Baal's a god, let him plead for himself. So Gideon got a new name, Jeroboam. Do you know what it means? Let Baal plead for himself. If he's a god, why are you worried about my son? Don't you love Gideon? Do you remember Gideon? He got his army whittled down to 10,000. He's looking at a host of the Midianites. The Bible says we're like the sand which is by the seashore. He was over, the odds were overwhelmingly against him. But the Lord looked at his army of 10,000 and said, nope, way too many, and thinned it down to 300. Remember? Look at Judges chapter 8. Judges chapter 8. We don't want to be like Gideon. We can be better than Gideon. We can finish our lives well. Gideon didn't. Judges chapter 8 in verse 24. Well, verse 22, the men of Israel wanted to make Gideon a ruler over them and he said, I don't want to be a ruler. Just give me all the earrings that you took off the Midianites and it was a pile of gold. And he took the gold in verse 27 and Gideon made an ephod with therewith thereof That's like a breastplate. It's split the sides. It hangs over the shoulders. It attaches at the waist. The priest of Israel wore it. He had this beautiful golden ephod made and most likely religious accessories for it and surroundings for it and put it in his city, even in Aphra. That's where he lived. That's where he had destroyed the Baal worship. And all Israel went thither a whoring after it, which thing became a snare unto Gideon into his house. What are you going to let happen in your family? What are you going to let happen in your life that's going to cause us to have to read something like this about you? Now Gideon is in Hebrews 11. Because God gave Gideon special mention for having taken on the Midianites with 300 men. And those 300 men did not have their swords in their hands. They had a torch 
and a trumpet. So God gave him Hebrews 11. But Gideon did not end well. Let me keep reading and showing you. Verse 29, And Jeroboam the son of Joash went and dwelt in his own house. See, the, the Holy Spirit just jumps back to his other name right here. And then in verse 30, And Gideon had threescore and ten sons of his body begotten. He had seventy sons, for he had many wives. Polygamy. Excessive polygamy. Ephod worship. Led all the nation into spiritual idolatry and spiritual adultery. We don't want to be like Gideon. Last night you read about King Saul. God's first king for Israel, very gifted. Who was the best looking man in, in all of Israel when Saul was a young man? There was no comparison. He was from the shoulders up taller. And the Bible says in one verse that he was the goodliest and goodlier than them all, than anyone in the nation of Israel. God prepared him and gifted him in so many ways and honored him, and put the Holy Spirit within him, caused him to be a prophet, gave him Samuel to be his counselor. He was blessed. He, he had a number of events happen in his life that the prophet had told him would happen to confirm that he was God's man for the job. He won a great victory over the Ammonites very early in his career. The Lord blessed him abundantly, but he became a castaway because he profanely would not trust God in the matter of waiting for Samuel to defeat the Philistines. 1 Samuel 13. You read it last night. There are some powerful words in that chapter that God told Saul that if he had obeyed him, his family would have sat on the throne of Israel forever. But it didn't because he didn't obey him. He lost his composure out of fear. And he did it again two chapters later. Then he became envious. Once the Holy Spirit is taken away from you from one act of disobedience, there's going to be another. Then the Holy Spirit is taken from you and you end up being a castaway. He was thrown away. And David replaced him. And I've preached about that at a men's meeting recently and we don't have time to go further. King Solomon gifted by God so greatly in his early years, and with the temple to his credit, fell into excessive, ridiculous polygamy, contrary to the law of Moses, and idolatry by those pagan women that he married. He ended up being an idolater. He built temples to Chemosh, God of the Moabites. How in the world did that happen? He had married a couple of pagan wives before he ever had his vision in 1 Kings chapter 3. He was already setting the stage for his ruin. If you're going to run your race like Paul, you can't mess around with pagan women. You can't mess around with unbelieving women. You can't mess around with average Christian women. You can't mess around with good Christian women. You want to marry as high as you can spiritually as you possibly can in order to run your race where Solomon didn't run his. Jehu. You know, there was a time in my life where I loved Jehu as one of my Bible characters that I took special recognition for, and that's because of his great zeal. And the Bible has wonderful things to say about him. Look at 2 Kings chapter 10. The Lord had wonderful things to say to Jehu, who purged Judah and Israel 
two nations of their wicked leaders. Second Kings chapter 10. He drove his chariot furiously. He was known for that because he was a man of great zeal. And when you read about what he did to uh, the sons of Ahab and what he did to Jezebel, you know that he was a man of zeal. Everything he did was just an extreme way of doing it and a wonderful way of doing it. You know, when he rode into Samaria and Jezebel had put all her makeup on and leaned her head out of a third-story window and told him that God was going to judge him because he was conspiring against established authority, he said, is there anyone on my side? Two or three eunuchs looked out, the Bible tells us. He said, throw her down. Those are my three favorite words. You've heard this for decades. Those are my three favorite words in that chapter. Throw her down. Then my five favorite words. So they threw her down. (laughs) Queen Jezebel. And he trampled her under his horse. And went inside and ate. Oh, then his conscience bothered him a little bit at the end of that meal. And so he said to some servants, go out. Eh, she's a king's daughter and a king's wife. She needs a burial. But there was nothing left because the dogs had eaten her while he was eating. Because the Lord couldn't stand Jezebel. Remember how he got rid of Baal worship? He went to the temple of Baal and made an announcement to all of Israel. Ahab served Baal a little. Jehu's going to serve Baal a lot. I want every single Baal worshiper here for a Baal conference. And so they had a Baal conference and he got out the, he got out the garments of Baal worship and they were all wrapped up in their priestly garments. And he and Jehonadab went to the altar of Baal and offered sacrifices. Now is that extreme? When you're God's man and you're offering sacrifices to Baal? But he wanted them all relaxed. He told the crowd, Look among yourselves and make sure there's no one in here that worships Jehovah. Then he said, boys, do your job. And he had told them that if you let one of these Baal worshippers escape, it'll be your life for his. And he killed every single Baal worshipper and he turned the temple of Baal into a public toilet. In the Bible, the word is draft house. Look it up in a dictionary. Okay, here's what God said about the way He did things. Verse 30 of 2 Kings 10. There's two chapters about Jehu that I used to read repeatedly. 9 and 10. But verse 30, this is why I like Jehu. The Lord said unto Jehu, Because thou hast done well in executing that which is right in mine eyes, and hast done unto the house of Ahab according to all that was in mine heart, thy children of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. This man didn't have any royal pedigree. This man wasn't a king. His father wasn't a king. He was a captain in the army. But the Lord gave him four generations of kings because he did well in executing that which was right in the sight of God. But look at verse 31, and we don't want any buts in our lives. No buts for us, but... Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart, for he departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, which made Israel to sin, to wit, the golden calves, one in the city of Bethel, one in the city of Dan. He didn't leave idolatry. To to start off so well, 
to take God's commandment and to do it with all your might like he did? You know, Jehoram came out to meet him in a field while he was in his chariot. Jehoram came out to meet him in a field and he said, Jehu, are you come in peace? And he said, how can there be peace when you're on the throne? You know, and Jehoram fled for his life and it says Jehu drew his, drew his bow back at full strength and drove that arrow right through his back and out his chest. But the Lord judged his family for the zeal he showed against idolatry and then ended up being an idolater himself. Lord, let us finish our lives better than Jehu. Asa. God blessed Asa greatly. He was a great grandson of Solomon. He took on a million Ethiopians, the largest army fielded in the Bible. We've never put one million men in one field of battle. But the Ethiopians did against Asa. And Asa went out to meet them and said, Lord, it doesn't matter with you whether there's many or few. We're way outnumbered, but you can take care of us. And they won a great victory. But later in his life, the king Baasha, the king of, of Israel, of the ten tribes, came against Asa, and he took the vessels of the temple of God and sent them to the king of Syria and said, Will you get Baasha off my back? And the prophet came to him and said, What in the world did you just do? I saved you from a million Ethiopians in one battle, and you went and tried to buy a confederacy with Syria to protect you from Baasha, king of the ten tribes of Israel? There's trouble on you for the rest of your life. Then he got a disease in his feet, and he wouldn't seek to the physicians, and it ended up dying in his 41st year of his reign, spending the last two years with a serious disease of his feet because he had turned away from God. How in the world can men do that? I'm going to tell you why. Because every day that we get up, we have to flush yesterday and the day before and every accomplishment that we've ever had, every good thing that we've ever done. We need to flush it and forget those things which are behind and press forward for those things that are ahead and run that 100 meters. It does not matter. I had a son that when he would run a 400-meter race, I could count on him winning at 200 meters for absolute certainty. With a decent probability, he would be winning at 300 meters. But he didn't pace himself. So at the finish line, he was usually checking out the insignias on the back of the uniforms of the rest of the guys in the race. My family knows who I'm referring to, and that's what I'm talking about right now. Forget the pace. We have 100 meters to run. I don't care if it's 10 years or 40 years. It may only be a week. One of you is going to come down with something that you're not going to recover from in the next few weeks or months. Let us run the rest of our race from this day forward the best we have ever run it. And I have mentioned the different ways in which we can do that. I am thankful that in the New Testament, we have a man named John Mark. He was a nephew of Barnabas. Barnabas had a sister. That sister had a son named John Mark. John Mark went with Paul and Barnabas on their first preaching trip, recounted in Acts chapters 13 and 14. At the end of Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas got together and said, we need to go visit those churches that we started on our first trip. Barnabas said, I want to take my nephew. Paul said, no way. He went AWOL on us the first trip. 
No way. So Barnabas and John Mark went off in one direction to churches. There's a lot that could be said about that, and I don't want to deal with that. Paul took Silas and was recommended by the church to go and retrace that ground from his first trip. But you know what? Later in life, what the Bible says about John Mark? Oh, in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 11. This is all that counts. It's how we finish. It's not how we started. Look at Paul's start. Persecuting the church. Persecuting Jesus Christ. It's how we finish. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 11. Here's Paul from Rome. His last chapter that he wrote. Only Luke is with me. He's writing Timothy. Take Mark and bring him with thee. Paul wanted to see Mark, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. Amen. Amen. That is ending well. John Mark ended well. True disciples continue in the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. There were those that believed on Jesus in John chapter 8 and verse 30, but he said to them, Ye are my disciples indeed, if ye continue. Continue. But you know what I'm preaching to you today? I'm not preaching continuing. I'm preaching increasing. I'm preaching growing. Because look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Please help me finish on time. Or I, I will have not made this the best day of my life so far. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But as touching brotherly love, 1 Thessalonians 4.9, but as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you. For ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. Now that would be continuing if you just kept on loving the brethren. But look at Paul. Look at this driven man. Look at this man that says they all run, but only one gets the prize. Look at what he says. And indeed, ye do it. That means you show brotherly love toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more. I've shown you that verse before. More and more. Can we do better? Can we increase? We can. You either progress or backslide. You either progress or backslide. Don't deceive yourself. Choose growth. We want to be forward pressing, not backsliding. We don't want to be status quo, talent burial Christians. We want to be, Lord, you gave me five, here's ten. These are just a few examples. Your television. You got a smart one now, huh? A smart television. So you can access anything you want, anytime you want, and you don't have to risk you leaving your house and being caught by another family in the church at Blockbuster. Is that what you mean by a smart television? I think that's what you meant. Are you guarding that wicked devil's pulpit that's in your house so that it's not spewing stuff into your heart, mind, that is contrary to the Word of God? Are you bitter through unforgiveness to others, which will destroy your life? It will spring up, and thereby many will be defiled. It will destroy you. Look at Saul. He couldn't handle envy of David, who would have served him faithfully and who eulogized him after his death. Get rid of unforgiveness and bitterness. Have you lost your thankful spirit full of praise that once made you great? It doesn't matter how you ran the second lap. How can we finish together? Let's finish the best for the Lord. 
I don't know how long I have. I don't know how long you have. Whether it's short or many days, let's give Him our best. Is your holiness what it should be to meet Jesus Christ? You know, you're in 1 Thessalonians 4. I read verses 9 and 10. Verses 1 through 8 are about your holiness. Look at how verse 7 is worded. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. There's holiness described in eight verses, and it's sexual purity. Are you as committed to sexual purity? And I mean every single one of you in thought, in word, and in deed, as you've ever been, yea, better than you've ever been. Have you lost your first love, or are you lukewarm to the Lord Jesus Christ? Get it restored. Get it restored today. Remember from whence thou art fallen, repent, and do the first works. He hates lukewarmness. He would we were either cold or hot. It's a choice. It's a choice to want to be a world-class athlete. And we can all be a world-class athlete in the eyes of Almighty God who has enabled us by putting us in His Son before the world began and giving us the Holy Spirit because He hath worked in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Who is going to work it out with fear and trembling to be the best? Godliness is not a process. It is a decision right now. It's a decision. Lord, I'm all yours. What wilt thou have me to do? Yes, I've been doing such and such. It is gone. I am through with that. Let us press into new territory for our king. Look at Philippians chapter 1. I'm finishing quickly. Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. Philippians 1, verse 9. It's only a few pages to the left. This I pray. This I pray. Here's this driven man, the Apostle Paul, praying for you. This I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ under the glory and praise of God. That's what the apostle prayed for you, for you to do more and more, to abound in it, and to be filled with fruits. This is the fruit-bearing, filled life of a truly dedicated, committed, consecrated Christian. Turn to the next book, Colossians chapter 1. Same verses, 9 through 11. Look at this apostle praying for church members like you and me, that we would be great in the sight of the Lord, that we would win first place. Colossians 1.9, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing, increasing, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to His glorious power, unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness. And that's one-third of a sentence. Those nine verses that are right there are one fabulous sentence that the Holy Spirit gave us from the pen of Paul. But look at, he's talking about us increasing. What is your life? I've taught you before that it would be wonderful to have a an epitaph that says, He loved God above all others. Meaning, He loved God more than anyone else loved God. Not that He loved God above His family. But He loved God above, ev- above everyone else loving God. He loved God above all others. 
He was a tree of life to all others. Have you made progress toward that goal? Today we start making progress toward that goal. That's the finish line. Loving God more than others love Him. Being a tree of life to others more than others are a tree of life. By the grace of God, for the glory of God. We can only have that if we live today the way that we should. All for Him. All for others. We're third. We're last. Jesus, others, and you. Examine yourself and see where you've fallen in devotion and zeal, starting in your heart. The Lord often has to restore us with trials and temptations. Negative things come into our lives. Chastening comes into our lives. The Lord beats us. It hurts. He scourges us. But, brethren, that's proof that He loves us. And if that's what it takes to get us closer to Him, then bring me the stony griefs and by my woes, bring me nearer my God to thee. The only way to live life well or to end life well for the Lord's sake is to live today well for Him. Never look back. Only look forward. Forget those things which are behind. Press forward. What would God have me do today for the Lord Jesus Christ? May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. Amen.